And it's usually said in a certain circumstance where a person is relaxing. The meaning of it is that a, a person is very much enjoying the situation that he or she is in. And it's usually spoken, like I say, from a place of relaxation at a time of relative tranquility. You'll see, oftentimes you'll hear it in the context of a couple of people sitting with their feet in the lake and sitting in a, in a chair and having a cool breeze blow off the water and the sun is setting and they're not living in Minnesota because there's no bugs. Uh, but one might look to the other and say, now this is the life. And the idea is life is currently perfect is what they're getting at. And from a, from a temporal, physical, human perspective, that can actually seem like it's true at times. But apart from the Lord, apart from some spiritual perspective, apart from his involvement in your lives, that's always fleeting. It never provides any lasting satisfaction. And, and if you don't believe me, just think about your recent vacations. This is the life. I mean, people look forward to, they spend all of their time looking forward to either vacations or weekends or retirement. Very often that's the the focus. But isn't it often true that even while you're on vacation, you find that this sense of everything is perfect and tranquil and restful, it's fleeting? It just takes what? One negative interaction with somebody you're on the trip with or a a flat tire, some kind of a, some kind of a trial that you weren't expecting. Perhaps it takes weather that doesn't cooperate. Like I said, bugs that don't cooperate. Attractions that you wanted to see that don't, they don't measure up to what you were hoping they would be. They're disappointing or discouraging. Any number of different reasons, while, even while somebody is supposedly on this place, this trip of peace and tranquility intended to recharge their batteries, don't you find sometimes that even while you're in the midst of the vacation, it's not accomplishing that? It, see, it's fleeting. You can't get a hold of it. It doesn't provide lasting satisfaction. And even if it were, just, let's just say it was the best weather and the best this and the best that, but isn't it true that as soon as you come back, whatever sense of this was the life that you had gotten a hold of for that moment in time that it passes away quickly because you're confronted again with normal life circumstances around you, and normal life isn't a resort, is it? No, like, I think sometimes we think that just because God is in control and because God promises us his peace if we'll live life with him, if we'll include him in our lives, if we'll, if we'll spiritually walk a life that is hand-in-hand hand with his, shoulder, leaning into him as we go through life, that that's going to mean that the physical life, the world around us, our, our, our temporal life is going to be a, a fairy tale of some kind. It's going, to be a res- it's going to be like living in a resort. And God never promised that. He said, if you'll stay in my presence, there'll be fullness of joy. If you'll keep your mind on me, you'll have perfect peace. As Paul said, you'll learn to be able to find contentment regardless of your circumstances because you'll see that I'll provide everything that you need. But he didn't promise that the circumstances would change, the enemy's attacks would, would lessen, that life would be all roses. That's not the case. And so it's always fleeting and it never provides any lasting satisfaction. But you see, for the one who is living without Christ, that person who doesn't understand the spiritual plane, doesn't understand the eternal plane, doesn't understand that you can't separate this physical life from spiritual life or eternal life. For that person, 
The one living without Christ. Living without Christ as an unbeliever. But also for the person who may be sitting here today, any one of us, the person who is a believer but is presently living without Christ. For that person, whether they're unsaved or saved, but they're presently living without Christ, the best he can hope for is a blip of artificial happiness that is inevitably followed by an unavoidable return to emptiness. That's the very best you can hope for if you're living life without Christ as in first tense salvation or as a believer in second tense salvation. That's the best you can hope for. This blip of artificial happiness that will fade away. And that's what inspires, it's that reality that inspires popular songs and they may not be popular to you, but songs that have been popular have, have sold a lot, of, a lot of copies over the years. Songs like, What's This Life For? Question mark. What's This Life For? A popular song as I was graduating. Or, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. Popular song by U2 back in the day. Or a popular song by Pearl Jam, Nothing Man. Think of a title to a song, Nothing Man. Or a popular song by Metallica, Fade to Black. You see, there's nothing but blips of artificial happiness apart from a right vertical relationship with the Lord. Thankfully, the Bible has revealed that truth. Thankfully, the Bible has revealed that any, a life that's going to satisfy temporally and eternally can be found. But it can only be found in a person and, in, and it can only be accessed through a relationship with him. A, a life that is going to have any lasting satisfaction in time or in eternity is only going to be found in a person and it, and it can only be accessed through a, a lasting relationship or a present relationship with him. So that's what John's been talking about throughout this book of 1 John. We've been off of it for a little bit as think, I want to thank Eric for filling in uh, for me for the, a couple of weeks. But now as we get back to it, we're, we're back to the same theme. The theme of the book remains the same. If you want to experience maximum joy in this present life and joy for all of eternity, it's going to have to be spent in fellowship with the Father. John is going to continue today to con- communicate this truth as he promotes his primary point. And that has been the primary point that this joy in living is only available through fellowship or living life with God. So let's take a look as we pick up again with that theme. Turn, if you will, to 1 John chapter 5. And we'll start reading in verse 9. Verse 9 says, If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. And that was the title of our last message in this series. The witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God which he has testified about his son. And the idea there was if we're going to accept all kinds of different things as true from human sources, why wouldn't we see that the testimony or the Evidence provided by God of the authenticity of his son Jesus, his person and his work, is worth or worthy of our faith, worthy as an object of our faith. Verse 10, he who believes in the son has the witness in himself. 
He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his son. And we had covered there was a lot of different testimony as we had gone through the first part of chapter 5 there evidence and testimony that Jesus was who he said he was. Now that evidence was provided by God himself. Those things were told or communicated to us for what purpose? That we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. There's many other things that could have been communicated too, but it was communicated. We looked at my take on it from through his his baptism, communicated through his death, communicated through his, the entirety of his earthly ministry, the miracles that he accomplished, communicated through his resurrection as God the Father resurrected Jesus from the dead to prove once and for all that he was exactly who he said he was. Witnessed to by many human beings who also testified of the authenticity regarding Jesus Christ seen by over 500 witnesses following his resurrection, and on and on you could go. All of that was evidence that was provided for what purpose that you would believe. And that testimony was ultimately given about the Son by God himself for that purpose. Verse 11, and this is the testimony. Now we're going to have this summary of sorts here. This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. That's the title of our message this morning. Life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. Emphatic statements being made there. So those are, Lord willing, the two verses that we'll look at. We happen to have them here on the wall of our church up here on the stage. On one side, we have John 3.16 telling us that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever would believe in him would not perish, experience ongoing permanent death of separation from the one who is life, but instead they would have everlasting life. So that, that tells us even when it comes to first tense salvation, having a, God having provided a solution to man's sinfulness. Man being able to appropriate that provision that God made on his behalf by putting his faith, to believe means to be convinced to trust in or put your faith in, the work of Jesus Christ on his behalf as Jesus bore all of our sins and he took our place and died the death that we deserve to die. So that if we would put our faith in his death, burial, and then resurrection on our behalf, as a substitute for us, his blood or his death would be applied to or appropriated to our account. So our account could be brought into a right standing with God, not because we had done anything, but we had accepted the payment of an innocent on the behalf of the guilty so that that payment could be applied to our account so God could apply his righteousness to our sinful conditions so we could be clothed in his righteousness. He could take our sin, put it on his son. He could then nail that sin and transgressions to the cross. He could cast that sin as far as the east is from the west. He could declare as he died, it is satisfied, it is paid in full. The full penalty that was owed by man, the debt that was owed by man had fully been satisfied by the substitutionary death of the Son of God. And so if we would accept that payment on our behalf by putting our trust and confidence, not something that we do externally, but something that we do mentally, putting our confidence in that substitution on our behalf, we could be saved. 
saved from the hell that we deserve to a heaven that we do not, not by any works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. And we could, if we could understand that, we could be called the child of God, John has said here in 1 John. Beloved, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. How did he do that? Through the person and work and sacrifice of his Son that we could then be called sons of God. Amen? And you say, that's what we're talking about here. We can have this quality of life on an eternal plane, everlasting life, this God's kind of life. We can have it as a personal present possession and we'll never lose it because God says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. They follow me and I give them Again, eternal life, and they will never perish. You see, if all of our confidence, as I was telling a, a young man at the Caribou Coffee this week, if all of our confidence in what God, is in what God has done for us, can we have assurance of our salvation? If all of the work has been completed by the substitutionary work of another, and if he cried out, it is complete, it is finished, it is satisfied. And if God the Father accepted that by resurrecting him from the dead as evidence that his substitutionary death was satisfying of the debt that was owed by all men, if God the Father would say that, and if we accept that, can we have confidence? The answer is yes, because it has nothing to do with us. It has to do with us accepting what's been done for us. The completeness doesn't come from us making it complete or being complete. We're incomplete. We're broken, flawed, and sinful. But God becomes complete for us. He makes it complete by doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. So now, as we trust in his completeness, as we trust in him as the satisfactory payment for us, now we can have complete assurance that we will never perish, but that we will have everlasting life in terms of longevity and in terms of quality of that life, which we'll get into in a second. So now up on our screen, here we have our verses for today. And this is the record that God has given us. We're going to see that that us refers to believers. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He that has the Son, this is present tense, he who has the Son will see, he presently has life. He that does not have the Son presently does not have life. Presently, this is written to who? First John is written to who now? Believers. About experiencing this godly quality of eternal, eternal life right now. John is writing to unbelievers that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God here. And he's saying, faith in the Son of God, believing in him, is how you get a hold of that life. John is telling believers here, this is how you appropriate that life that's available to you in time. So that'll... If you're going to doze off, that's the message right there for this morning. And I know, you know, fact of the matter is some of you think I'm joking, but if life has you run down to the point that you're falling asleep while I'm speaking, you deserve a nap. Let's pick up in verse 11 here and dive into these two verses a little bit more. And this is the testimony, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. This is the testimony. Testimony refers, as we've said already, to the statement of, a statement of fact or proclamation of truth. So stating a fact or proclaiming truth. And the previous two verses build to this climax. So we're talking about this testimony. This testimony has been talked about th- through the verses, uh, verses 6 and 7 and 8 too. And then 9 and 10 build up to sort of a culmination of that witness that God has provided about the person and work of his son. 
And so now we have this is the testimony sort of written as a type of a summary statement. This is the essence of what is being declared that we've been building to this point. This is the cumulative conclusion of all the testimony or evidence that was provided by God, His Son, Jesus Christ. There's no uncertainty. This is stated, it's going to be stated with two important facts, but this is the testimony. You see how definitive that is stated? This is the testimony. There's no wobbling on that. It's a fixed fact, a fixed statement of fact. Now, what is the first one? The first statement of fact is this. God has given us eternal life. So we start with God here. God is the source of the gift of eternal life. God is the source of that gift. And this is one of my favorite verses when you're thinking about God having given this out of mercy and love and compassion, tender love and compassion and kindness towards us, given this as a, a gift in his grace, unmerited favor, God's riches at Christ's expense, this idea of God as the source of this gift that we're going to talk about, this is one of my favorite passages about this. So I shouldn't say passages, one verse, but the whole passage is good. So we have Ephesians 2, 4. But God, and I love that, word but because it's a transition it's moving to this message of good news to create a transition for the bad news the bad news is we are hopeless and helpless and hellbound without Christ if something wasn't done about the sin that had estranged us from God's holiness we would remain forever separated from God now the place of course where God isn't on an ultimate eternal basis is the place that was prepared for Satan and the demons the lake of fire hell That's the future that we had to look forward to apart from God doing something to solve our problem. So then you have the good news here, but God, just like you have, but God demonstrates. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. That contrast between the condition that we were in, the desperation that we were facing, and God's solution. Very often you'll find this word but to make that transition. But God. Now let's, let's say a few things about him. God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Don't, if you're feeling down this morning, you feel like I don't fit in. I, I don't feel like I belong anywhere. I don't, I don't feel wanted or accepted. I don't feel like I matter to anyone. That, that may be true. I, I hate to say that to you. It, it may be true that, in fact, you do not matter to one single living soul. That could be true. It's not usually true. You're usually forgetting that even though some of these people in your life are hard to deal with, they do actually care about you. Even though some of these people, fathers included, are making your lives miserable, they do care for you. But even assuming that wasn't true, wouldn't this be enough to carry you through? I hope it would be. It is. I hope you see this. He has because of his great love with which he loved us. You are desperately loved by the only one who matters most. Now he loved us not because we were so attractive to him. He loved us when we were dead. Dead in what? Dead in trespasses. Now what did he do? God who is rich in mercy, even when we had nothing to offer him in terms of human goodness, 
There was none righteous, no, not one. All had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There was not one just man upon the earth who had done good and sinned not. Paul said that I know that in me, that is in my flesh, there dwells nothing good. The heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. If you don't see that, then you can't see that you have nothing to offer God. You never had anything to offer God. It was God in his love that had to look past your faults to see your need and provide a solution to your need. That is the gospel, the good news that God in his love could take and look at us broken and desperate for rescue and he could decide to rescue us on the basis of his great love for us, not on the basis of what we could do for God. See, religion always has a way of putting the focus on what we need to do for God. We need to do nothing for God other than accept that we were helpless and that he in his love did everything for us. The moment you try to add just a tiny little bit of yourself to this equation, it's not grace anymore. It's not a gift anymore. It's not God's mercy on display anymore. It's a reward now. It's, it's works now. It's you trying to work yourself into God's good favor. God loved you when you were dead in trespasses and sins. You didn't have to make him love you. He already loved you. What you have to see is that you could do nothing to save yourself, but God loved you and saved you anyway if you would just accept what his son has done for you. So he made us alive. Now, in the context here, Paul is writing to, again, believers. So he's talking about there was this point in time where this happened in the past because of God's love for us, but the ongoing effect of that was that he's given us this ability to live life in the present. We're gonna get to that with John here. Yeah, it, this all is tied together. Sometimes we try too hard to separate what I would call justification or first tense truth. How does a person who's a sinner ever, how can that person ever be found to be in a right standing with a holy God if he's sinful? Well, he has to be justified. He has to be declared righteous because of the substitutionary death of another on his behalf. That puts him into a right standing judicially, not because of what he's done, but because of the blood of Christ being applied to his guilty account so that his account can now be in right standing based on being covered with the sacrifice of Christ. But you can't separate that from the fact that that same provision of God is the same provision, his gracious provision for our everyday living so that we can appropriate now on a day-to-day basis, not just in the future one day in heaven, but on a day-to-day basis, what it means to be alive together with Christ. And here you have the summary statement, by grace you have been saved. So God, that's the source of this gift of eternal life, has given Amazing words here. You could read across them, but you wouldn't see that this is talking about something that is a gift. It identifies that what God provided was a gift. It was not something that is earned. John is not calling. I I had spoke to this a little bit already. John is not calling on them to receive that life. Rather, he is reminding them that they have already received it as a gift from God. God has given us eternal life. That happened at a point in time when we accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. This is a book about appropriating what you already have. You have this life. 
You will not perish, but you what? Have everlasting life as a present possession. They already have the eternal life. They, re, you receive that at some point in time where you decide, I'm finally done putting my trust and my confidence in something else or someone else to save me. I'm, I'm taking my confidence that I had been putting in by human effort and I'm not placing it exclusively in the work of Christ on my behalf. I'm taking the confidence that I had been placing in some kind of a religious ceremony or ritual that I'd gone through and I'm not placing that confidence. That could never save me. I realized that could never save me. It was symbolic of my faith in Christ, but it didn't save me. It couldn't save me. And now I'm putting all of my eggs in the basket of faith alone, by grace alone, and Christ alone. I'm taking the confidence I once had in my goodness, my human goodness, my human works, my church attendance, the ability of the church to save me. And I've realized that no church can save. And I'm putting all of my eggs in one basket putting my confidence in the person and work of Jesus Christ on my behalf exclusively. You see, nobody is generally that offended if they identify as Christian, that you tell them that God loves people, that God demonstrated that love for people by dying on a cross. They don't have an issue with that. You know what they take an issue with, though, is when you tell them, and that is the exclusive, your faith in that is the exclusive way that you could ever be born into God's family. If you try to add to that by giving your life to Christ, asking Jesus into your heart, living a good life, getting baptized, confirmed, catechized, whatever it is that you're saying you have to do, you've now added a work to something that was grace. And if you have a clear glass of water and you take one single drop of food coloring and you drip it into that glass that we're gonna call a pure glass of grace, if you drop one single work or human effort into an otherwise pure glass of grace, it's not grace anymore. It will taint the whole thing, one single drop. And that's why some people think, well, we're really, we really believe the same thing. We don't believe the same thing. If you think that part of the reason you're going to heaven is because of ritual that you went through, because of some church attendance on your part, because of some human goodness on your part, and you still also do believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, we don't believe the same thing. It's only that Jesus died on the cross for your sins that you can be put into a right relationship with God when you accept that. So, John, though, he he knows that he's writing to an audience, and we'll get there in a second. He's writing to an audience of believers. So this is about appropriating this eternal life that God has given as a free gift to those who did not deserve it. But they had to, at some point in time, recognize that. And I've been talking about it all morning, so we're not gonna get into it too much, but we just pointed this out. He gave us eternal life. You can have eternal life. He has given. You can have this eternal life. But gave there is focused on God giving it as a gift. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, for by grace you have been saved through Faith, this is your only part in it. Do you believe this or not? It is not of yourself. You couldn't be more clear about that. It's a gift from God. It's not of works. So how are you stick handling around that? How are you saying that it's not of works, but you have to do some kind of a work in order to get to heaven? I have people that have told me they believe the Bible is true and that they accept this verse but yet they still believe that you have to do something, some, some human effort of some kind, doesn't matter what the example is, in order to get in on it. 
You have added works to something that was something you just freely received. A gift has to be freely given and it has to be freely received. Now this is in the perfect tense. He has given. This is a completed verbal action in the past. God has given us eternal life. That happened already at a point in time in the past, but it had ongoing present results or effects. You talk about that point in time in the past. Hebrews 10, 14, for by one offering. Christ isn't continually being offered. He was sacrificed one time and he perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So there was a point in time event, this offering, one offering, point in time event, but being sanctified, this is an ongoing process. We're talking about progressive sanctification. The idea that over time, God is seeking to change us He says, come just as you are to a point where you be finally willing to put all of your eggs in this basket of faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. Come to that point. Now, from that point on, though I don't want to leave you just as you are, I want to change you. I want to transform you. I want you to grow and and change into the image of my son progressively over time as you would learn to trust me more, as you would let my spirit work through you in your life to bring about changes in your life that you could never bring on your own. My goal is to transform you, though, over time. We call that being sanctified. Now, you were positionally sanctified the moment that you put your trust in Jesus Christ, but you're being practically or experientially or progressively or whichever word you want to use, sanctified over time as God makes you more and more like his son when you get yourself out of the way, when you stop fighting, when you stop resisting what he's trying to do in your life. life. So as I said already, John's focus here in writing to believers, is on the practical implications associated with the ongoing results or effects of the past action. Now, the past action was he has given us eternal life as a present possession that we can can, uh, have indefinitely. But now he wants to talk about, well, what are the practical ramifications of that gift, though? So you have eternal life. But now, what does that mean on a practical, in a practical basis? Now, us, This identifies the recipients of God's gift. In the context, it refers to these particular believers, including John, but it's available to all. Anyone could get in on this. Anyone could have as a present possession everlasting life. This godly quality of life in time with eternal eternal length to it. Everyone could have that. Now, he's writing to these specific believers, but it could be anyone. And that's what Peter says here in 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. The question is, why hasn't the Lord returned yet? Some of us pray. I know Paul here, even in church. Some of us end prayers with, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Nothing wrong about that. We should be looking forward to the imminent return of Christ. He could come back any day. There's certain things that at times as we look at historically at the world around us, we say, man, it's got to be close. Look at what's going on. Maybe it is. Lots of people, lots of believers under lots of adverse circumstances have hoped that that was true. That is your hope. You should be hoping that. But whether it proves to be true or not, we're supposed to live every single day like it is our last 
and that Christ's return could be today. So it'll never alter how we live our lives, the circumstances going on around us, because we're always supposed to be living that way anyway. But the point being is believers were living that way in the early church and saying, why has God not come back? And circumstances were pretty tough there. We won't go into it, but way worse than anything we've ever experienced. But where where is the Lord's return? Why hasn't he come back? And so Peter has to answer that. And he says, the Lord's not slack concerning his promise. He hasn't forgotten about us, as some count slackness, but what is delaying him? What is delaying his return? He's long-suffering toward us. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Repentance being a word metanoia in Greek that means to change your mind. Not to feel sorry or turn from sin, but to turn to Jesus Christ from whatever else it was that you were trusting in before. So it's available to all, but in the context, this specific group of believers, including John, now he has given to us what? Eternal life. Now eternal life, as I've been building up to it, refers to both a quality of life in time and a length of life that is never-ending. So sometimes people don't understand that there's two sides to this. There's two parts to it. God has given us a length of life that is never-ending because now we are eternally his. We will never perish. We will be with him for all of eternity. But you know what? That can't be the primary focus of eternal life because the fact of the matter is that even those who reject God will live forever. They just won't live forever in his presence. So it can't just be length of existence. That is the focus of the word or the phrase. Because every person will exist forever. It's not about will you exist forever or not. It's will you exist forever where the Lord is. Or will you exist forever in the place where he is not. Which is the place of torment. The place of wailing and gnashing of teeth. The, faith, the place of burning but never being consumed. See, God didn't prepare that place for people. His will was that all would come to a change of mind where they would put their trust in him alone. But yet, he doesn't make people accept him. He doesn't make people put their trust in him. He doesn't make people let go of the religious stuff that they're still holding on to and put their faith in him exclusively. He doesn't make them do that. He lets them make their decision for themselves. But one, one of those decisions will get you permanently spending that length of life that never ends with him in heaven. The other will get you permanently spending that length of time or length of existence without end in the place where he is not. So this has to, though, refer to, is more than anything, the quality of life that God has provided for us. That quality of life in time and also that quality of life that we'll experience in eternity. Because both will have the length of life or length of existence, whether it's with God or apart from God. So he has to be referring more to the quality of that existence. Now, that existence that we have as Christians, it's not limited just to our future existence. It's we're existing right now, and we right now have as a present possession this quality of life that God can provide. And that's what John is getting at here. So John's primary focus in this letter is on the godly quality of life available in time, not the future eternal existence in heaven, though he's certainly not opposed to that. He spoke on that in the gospel 
account. But here his focus is on this appropriation, this access practically in time to this quality, this godly quality of life that is available right now. John is reminding his readers they possess eternal life, freely given them by God. Thus he's not calling upon them to receive that life. Wow, I think I have a double slide here. He is reminding them that they have already received it. This is what I wanted to get to, even if the first part was duplicative. He's exhorting them to practically appropriate that quality of living right now. This is the testimony. God has given us, who's the us? Believers. Has given us eternal life. He's saying practically appropriate that quality of godly living right now in life in the present. So he goes on to say this life is in his son. And that's the second statement of definitive fact. God's testimony that life is in his son speaks to two aspects of, his, of appropriating this eternal life. So there's two things here. One, we've spoken about this at length this morning. No lost person can receive this quality of life that will go on for eternity and will exist in the temp- temporal realm. No lost person can receive that life apart from believing in his son. This life is in his son. So if you were quoting this verse to an unbeliever, it'd be absolutely true. This life can only be found in his son. You cannot receive that godly quality of life temporally or eternally apart from faith in the Son of God. But the second thing and the thing he's getting at here is no saved person can enjoy it apart from believing in his Son as a present, ongoing, progressive sanctification type of truth. Are you presently believing in his Son? Are you presently walking by faith? Are you presently appropriating the fellowship that God wants to have with you? If you're not presently walking by faith, believing in the Son, then you're not presently enjoying the godly quality and nature of life that God has made available to you right now in time. So this life is in his Son. You cannot have it if you're living life apart from him. You cannot have it positionally. You cannot have it practically. Both are absolutely fixed truths. So then we move on. Oh, a couple more things here. John is reminding them of life's source. John is reminding them of life's source. This life is in his son. So as we move on to this next clause, this life is in his son. So this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. Now the second statement of fact is this life is in his son. John wants to remind them of the source of this life and that is Jesus himself. There's no other place to access this life apart from him. It's the person and work of Jesus but it's also this practical living life with him, this appropriation of this type of life where I'm spending it in union with him, that I am in him and he is in me. His spirit is in me. So this, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, but yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. This life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. This idea of union with him, that to really be living life in the present is to live life in union with him, practically enjoying that relational fellowship with him in time. 
So the focus is on the possession of a quality of life that springs forth from the person or the source of life. This life is in his son. The source of that life is Jesus and John couldn't be any more clear about it. So this life is in his son. It takes us back to the very first verse of the letter. John has been telling us that there is no life. There is no maximum joy in life. This present life, it can't be found or it can't be experienced or appropriated on a practical basis apart from living life with Jesus Christ. So the very first verse of the letter which states that eternal life is found in the person and work of Jesus. You have 1 John 1.1. 1, 1. So he says that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled. But catch this, concerning the word of life. He was referring to Jesus there. Jesus is the word of life. It's the only place that life can be found. So Jesus confirmed this also. This life is his son. Jesus spoke for himself when he confirmed this throughout his earthly ministry. So you're thinking about this life is in his son. There's lots of aspects to it, but Jesus himself proclaimed this same truth. John eleven twenty five and 26, I just have 25 here, but Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and what? The life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live, and whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he says to her, do you believe this? You see, the Bible repeatedly tells us that's the only way that we can get in on this life that God offers on, in terms of the quality of life eternally and the quality of life in time, temporally. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Catch that, the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, and John was an evangelistic book. Now apply it to 1 John. Nobody lives life, really experiences life, really experiences a life that's worth living, that has those godly qualities that would have redeeming value. We're talking about the, the value of life, the quality of life, laying aside treasures in heaven, investing in eternal things, seeing ourselves as citizens of heaven. Investing in things that don't fade away and don't perish. Investing in things that have that eternal value because we see that, that eternal plane, that godly quality of life that only operates on the eternal plane. That's the only kind of life, the only quality of life that is worth experiencing or living. So although possessing eternal life is an automatic result of regeneration, you will have everlasting life. Experiencing eternal life in this life anyway, is contingent on one's relationship with Jesus who is eternal life itself. And that's sort of a summary of the statement, the second fact. So God has given us eternal life, but this life is in his son. That's what we're talking about, a summary. Experiencing that life can only be found by living life with the son of God. So then he says, he who has the son has life in verse 12. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Again, these are emphatic statements. It's a statement of the only logical conclusion. The statement is made from both a positive and a negative perspective. It's the same thing being said from both perspectives. He who has the Son has life. That's the same thing as saying he who does not have the Son does not have life. One is a 
One is the only logical conclusion of the other. So if life can only be found in his son, then this naturally follows. So if life is in his son, then the only way you're going to have life is if you have the son. So that's where the logic comes into it. It's, It's a natural carryover from verse 11. So you have life if you have him. You don't have life presently if you don't have him. So then you think about during this life, the earth, this earthly life, the believer participates or appropriates or accesses on a practical experiential basis the eternal life because he has the son in whom this life is found. Eternal life is not only a, a possession you enjoy in the future, but the life of God expressed in you now, in time, now via the Holy Spirit, and it's experienced by you now in the present. And so that's the thing that's hard about eternal life is because I know as I was growing up, I looked at eternal life as just focusing at life that would exist in the future and never end. What God has given you is so much more than that. He's given you a quality of life that is sourced in him himself and, sent, and, and hence it reflects him in himself. So a godly character and quality of life. He's given you that for the today and for tomorrow. He's given you the eternal access to that. Now, he's promised that in the future you will enjoy it because your sin nature will be eradicated. You will, you will be glorified. You will do nothing but experience that quality of life for all of eternity. So, hence, that's why that oftentimes becomes the greater focus. But what he's given you is that access to that quality, that godly quality and character of living in the temporal realm too. The only difference is that it's not automatic. That is automatic. It's not automatic that you'll appropriate practically the quality of God's kind of living in time that he wants to make available to you. John has been spending the whole book saying that the only way that you'll be able to appropriate God's kind of living, those qualities, the di- being a partaker of the divine nature, those qualities of living, the only way you'll be able to Experience that practically or appropriate that practically in time is if you'll live life with him. Remember, the book is about staying connected to him, abiding in him, being, having that idea of fellowship, that close, intimate fellowship with him where you're including him in your thoughts, you have your gaze fixed on him. You're looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of, of your faith, and you're allowing then in that time of intimacy with the Father his spirit to work in in and through you so that he can produce in your life a life that would be consistent with his priorities, his focus, his direction for your life, his purpose, his will, his word. That's what John's been getting at all the time. And that's what he's talking about here as he's writing about eternal life. It's this quality, these characteristics of living that are sourced from God himself, sourced from Jesus himself, only found in this relationship with him as I'm in him and he's in me and I'm abiding and enjoying that and walking in that, having that describe my manner of living, that I'm operating in dependence and rest, resting in his provision for me and allowing him to work through me, getting myself out of the way so that God can have his way with me. That's what John is focused on here. So it's, it's a life that can be expressed in you right now. 
Now we move to has the son, does not have the son. Has the son and does not have the son. So the one who has the son, he has life. The one who does not have the son, does not have life. Now, is that, is that a universal truth in the sense, does that apply to all phases of salvation? Justification, sanctification, glorification. Can you be glorified without having the Son? No. Can you be sanctified? Can you live a life that would please the Lord? Godly Christian living, can you do that without the Son? No. Can you be saved from the penalty of sin without the Son? Without the sacrifice of Christ having been applied to your account? No. So, John in his gospel actually says a very similar thing in John 3.36. So it's true in all phases of salvation, but right now he's focused on Christians. He's writing to believers about either having the Son and having life or not having the Son presently and not having life. So let's finish with unpacking this. So both has and does not have are in the present present tense to indicate a current state of being. Now, this is, I know some of you, the language stuff, the grammar stuff doesn't mean anything. And frankly, for most of my life, it didn't mean anything either. But it tells us a few things and it helps us understand this a little bit. Both of these are participles too. So participles are, are words that have characteristics of verbs and adjectives. And so has, most would characterize that primarily as a verb, but it's a participle. It's a, it's a type of verb. But it's a verb that has qualities of an adjective. So the person, this person who has the son. So has the son is describing the subject. Now the subject is he. So it's saying he, now who has the son, that's being used as an adjective to describe that person, not so much to convey action. Verbs often are conveying action. But it's not trying to convey action. It's trying to describe the he, this person. So there's a type of person or there's, yeah, there's a type of person who presently has the son and having the son, that relationship, that intimacy, that's describing that person right now. Now there's, all, there's another field or category of people, he's, subjects, and these subjects do not presently have the son. So those per- people aren't described as being in intimate proximity to the son. So it's being used more as an adjective to describe the person who either has Jesus in close proximity to him or this other person who does not have Jesus in close proximity to him. Now, the person who presently is having the son in closeness in proximity to him, that person has life. The person who's living life apart from him, though, whose life is characterized by a distance between him and the son, that person is not presently experiencing life. So the sense is that a person can be described or characterized by having the son or not having the son. Just describe that. Now, this is true in the positional sense and it's true as a present practical reality. Now, what we're talking about here is in a positional sense. What John is talking about in his gospel is primarily in, in this sense, here. But what he's talking about right now is present practical reality. Do you presently, as a practical reality in your life, do you have the Son? To have the Son means that you have your eyes fixed on the author and finisher of your faith, Jesus. That's having the Son. 
You're focused on him. You're living life with him. His spirit is working in, in and through you. That's having the son. But presently, is that your state of being? Or is your present state of being that you've been distancing yourself from God? You haven't been living life with the son. You haven't been experiencing that intimacy with him. Remember what we described world, the definition of worldliness is a system of thinking that is ultimately under the control of Satan though that operates in a way that's diametrically opposed to the things of faith. But the primary part of that definition ended with, but it excludes God. See, we have all this, we have all this time often that we focus on other people being worldly or not. But we're, be, we're being worldly when we're living life in a way that excludes him. And that's what John's really getting at here. So both are absolutely true and the verse can reinforce either principle. However, the emphasis here is fellowship or your present Christian walk. So the questions are these. Are you presently, practically, and experientially enjoying the kind and quality of life only God can direct, enable, and empower as you sit here today, are you living life with him? Are you including him or are you excluding him? Are you drawing nearer to him or are you distancing yourself from him? Are you presently partaking of the divine nature of Christ in an experiential way, being empowered to live godly as the spirit of God works in you? Is that true of your present life right now? Now, question, what, what if it's not true? I won't ask for a show of hands. But I mean, if you catch me <laughs> throughout the day, it could be true, could be not true. But what's always the solution? When you get distracted from the thing you should be focused on, what's the solution? Refocus, reorient, turn your gaze back to the thing you ought to be focused on. Is it possible for you to live out the remainder of your time here on earth without being distracted from the thing you should be focused on? No, okay, I'll help you, no. Is it possible for you to live the rest of this message? (laughs) I hope the answer is no, but the guy is long-winded. Right, that's the idea. The solution's in front of you. It's It's right there. Go vertical. Get off the horizontal, go vertical. So life is in his son, Do you presently have the sun? That's the question as you go through your day. That's what I need to be asking myself. Do I have the sun right now because am I living life in intimacy with him or not? You can. Start involving him in your life. Turn your gaze to him. Include him. Consider him. And if not, what's stopping you? What's stopping you from including him in your life? Do you really think the alternative is better? See, that's what Satan's trying to convince us. Has God really said, you shall not surely die, he said? He's trying to convince you that the alternative is better. Do you really believe that those little blips of temporal enjoyment are better than living life with him and enjoying his peace and his joy, his plan and direction for your life? You see, as Solomon effectively concluded in the book of Ecclesiastes, this is a paraphrase that I was taught when I was young. Apart from a right vertical relationship with God. Man is miserable and life is meaningless.
Think of those titles to those songs. Do you want your life to have meaning? Do you want to have joy? Then don't try to live it apart from God. Enjoy that intimacy of fellowship with God. Stop chasing the people and the things you think will make you happy. Experience the lasting joy that can only be found by living life with him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we could spend together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this fellowship that we can have with one another. Pray that we would take advantage of it. Pray for the upcoming VBS here on Monday. Pray that you would undertake to bring glory, that you would be glorified in it, that you would bring many young people to grow in their faith if they already are saved, or that you'd bring young people who could come to know you as their Savior if they haven't already. Pray that that would be, again, honoring to you. Pray for the camp building process and the camp that's coming up in the blink of an eye. Pray that you'd undertake with the details associated with that. Pray that you'd actually work on young people's hearts to stimulate them to want to come to camp. As right now, we have kind of low numbers registered. Pray that, pray that we could have a great uh, change of thinking and so that people would see that the value there is infinite. In Jesus' name, amen.